man what's good kyle bro i'm uh just out here living out here I'm, living yeah you living with i mean you know the with the week that was you know living feels like you know is a it's a it's a real blessing right now particularly as our capitalist overlords have seemingly opened a portal to hell in the gulf of mexico i thought that was a, i thought that was cgi i thought it was something from a movie and so I was just so shocked when I saw, I think AOC retweeted it. And I was very, very confused and horrified, honestly. Yeah, this week has been, uh, <laughs> in some respects, a literal dumpster fire. <laughs> yes. Or uh, shall I say a literal gas fire in the middle of the ocean. <laughs> um, and it has, it has caused me to reflect upon the challenges that emerge when trying to speak of difficult and strange times. Um, there's both nothing new under the sun and there are also many suns. Mm. Uh, borrowed that from Octavia Butler. Hey, man, that's, that's a nice little twist. Yeah, I like that. Man, listen, Octavia, Octavia Butler was was onto some things that understood, uh, you know, <laughs> well before there was a Black Man Unlearning podcast mm -hmm. at there would be so many uh, challenges, and and in so many ways, her her work, her science fiction, and the Afrofuturistic bent of it, uh, she really put her finger on so much of the madness we're experiencing now, whether in the forms of our environmental degradation, um, the collapses happening on the watch of capitalism, which. There's something something that I, interesting that a friend prompted me to think about with respect to capitalism, uh, but we can circle back to that. Um, and yeah, so much like in this this week that was about, you know, famous figures behaving badly and how we think of you know crimes and punishment, and so so much to unload and unpack. And I'm glad we're, you know, kind of taking on. Uh, the 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 current events this week and trying to get some clarity in our own thinking about what's what's going on in our world and why and what do we do about it how do we respond yeah you highlighted this in our prep right that we're none of us are experts on all things right and these are very widely differing subjects to be speaking about whether we're talking about uh, capitalism and uh, environmental science and what's happening with global warming and the Pacific Northwest being very, very hot. Or if we're talking about uh, the, you know, persistent rape culture that exists in this country, uh, such that our legal system might allow someone like Bill Cosby um, to be released from prison, despite the litany of allegations that he has faced and a confession on his part as well uh, to you know the dealings with the legalization of marijuana and how though legal in some places um, still policy in certain organizations uh, does not allow for its use um, and so right we neither of us are experts in all these areas I would to call myself an expert in any of them but you know we have opinions about them right um and so the question is how do we you know 
responsibly discuss some of these things, um, particularly with the advent of social media, we may feel pressure to discuss uh, them or uh, we just want to kind of jump into the fray because everybody's kind of talking about it. Um, how do you feel about jumping into those conversations before we kind of dive into them individually? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm with that. I'm with that. Yeah. And so I guess we could, I guess we could, we could start with, well, one of the big headliners of the week, maybe the, what was on the front end of the week, uh, the release of one William Cosby from prison. Um, Mr. Cosby, uh, popularly um, known and acclaimed for his role as Cliff Huxtable on The Cosby Show, uh, was recently released from prison. And the uh, news reports on the matter have uh, said it was related to um, the uh, inadmissible use of testimony of his own um, that had been procured with an understanding that that testimony could not be used to prosecute him. And so because um, that testimony was used um, to bring up charges for him um, on the matter of uh, rape and sexual assault, he uh, essentially was released on a legal technicality. Right. And that release prompted a host of responses, many of which I found both strange and predictable. Um, I mean, there were the responses, you know, that I think of from, and, and, this, and it's complicated too, because it, you, can't, you can't merely funnel these responses into, oh, this person is in this camp or that camp. Right. Like there were folks across lines of uh, gender and political orientation and sexuality and and so on and so forth, identifying in different ways with what his release meant, whether it was folk who have been uh, victims of sexual assault or been advocates for sexual assault victims saying like, yo, this is really messed up and triggering and his release on a legal basis does not constitute innocence. Those who celebrated his release and said, you know, him being there in the first place was a miscarriage of justice. Uh, I think those were some of the similar to the words or uh, if not the words that um, Felicia Rashad, uh, famed actress and dean of the Howard uh, School of Fine Arts, uh, tweeted. Um, there are those, you know, I think of, you know, a number of ministers who framed this release in terms of, uh, in terms of a sense of redemption. And well, you know, God redeemed us for our sins. So, you know, who are we to judge? And just a whole host of, of responses that were, one, just staggering in their volume, but also mystifying in their, their intent and what they suggest about how people see and perceive the world. Because to me, a famous, wealthy, albeit black man getting out of prison 
on a technicality is not it's not the poster boy for man this is what's wrong with the system or now we can acknowledge like there's a whole bunch of stuff that i think is fundamentally flawed and irredeemable about our carceral systems about our systems of so-called justice uh criminal justice which feels like an oxymoron to me uh but yeah i don't know i, I found myself just very frustrated and concerned for what these different perspectives mean and what people mean to signify because if you make these kinds of statements publicly you're signaling to people who see who hear them where your allegiances lie you're signaling something to them about who and what you value and what you privilege and i'll admit it's it's a it's a messy situation because it, you know folk folk can fall on different different sides of issues depending on the context and the day and whatever else is going on um but anyhow I, i'll i'll leave it there because i really want to hear how you've been sort of responding to and and receiving what's happening the cosby thing was very surprising i so i i had no idea this was even in the works and so when i was digging for information as to why he had been released realizing this was all based off of a technicality that listening to an interview actually on the damn dan libertar show uh with a reporter named nikki egan even called into question some of the validity about the um the categorize categorization of the testimony that in which Bill Cosby incriminated himself, um, that being off the record or not available to be used by the prosecution has even some folks calling that into question. So um, realizing that it's all based off a of technicality and then watching folks celebrate that he had been released, it just, you know, it, it points to a lot of old scars. I think I, I have some experience with kind of seeing what sexual assault does as it propagates through a group of people. I think that there are many times when we talk about kind of the, the silence that we treat some of these things with. Uh, I'll speak specifically in the black community where we're upholding leaders and saying we don't want them to be torn down. And this particularly being something that, that is repeated in our history with black men, not pointing a, any, any attention to some of those crimes that are that have very clear victims with what we would hope, at least in our conversations, uh, victims who who are worthy of you know the same dignity, have the same access to freedom and love, right? Those people being swallowed up by these abusers, right? And so to watch folks not even really spare a thought about the reasoning for the Cosby's release before you know hopping in to celebrate that release or even attributing you know that release to god's grace or god having a plan and you know everything being in god's control or what have you like it it's 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 gross for a lot of reasons and i think a lot of times when um we have these conversations we are pushing for folks not to take the simple answer or not to um, regard things as, well, it's always been this way, but to question why we think the way we do or why we believe the things that we've been taught to believe or the things that we act out uh, our belief of, right? And it's just, when, when you look at this, 
situation and folks' response to it. It's hard to understand how people separate their support of the release of someone who assaulted those women by his own words and how they might not see how that would make someone uneasy about having their children around them or uneasy about the way that they might be raising their sons and how that type of behavior has produced a world in which so many um, Black women have experienced sexual assault and not been given, Black women and women in general, but specifically speaking in our community, not being given the, the space to have some form of justice, because I don't know that we have a way to give real justice in this situation, right? Uh, but to, to even have their uh, abusers not face consequences, this is symbolic of some of the biggest problems that we see for folks that we share community with when these very heinous acts can go without sustained punishment or that there is um, a way that you could escape the responsibility of the consequences of that punishment on a technicality that, that in no way exonerated him, right? And so it's hard to continue to share community with folks who are not looking to protect people whom we share community with. Uh, so that, that part is, is certainly, certainly very difficult. And I realize that these conversations, as we unpack them are, are very complicated, right? Because there are those among us who are all about abolishing prison systems. And there's good scholarship around that. There's good thinking around that, right? I'm not as well versed and I still need to do some of that work, kind of pointing to that point about not being experts in everything, right? But in the current system and watching how many folks responded um, with uh, feeling triggered or, uh, just perhaps despondent or just generally hurt because they have their own experiences with abusers not being held accountable for the abuse that they created or that they propagated, right? And that these things don't just stop in that moment, right? There was someone on social media and they posted a tweet about their abusers moving on to these great careers and how they in turn dropped out of school and didn't pursue their dreams and things like that because that act was so disruptive. And so it's, it's just, it's, it's, it's really frustrating to listen to folks continue to make this same mistake, this pattern that we see in our society where we're standing and applauding someone from our community not being held accountable for their nonsense, for their crimes, right? And mm -hmm. I, I just, I'm, I'm having trouble connecting the dots in the logic. 
Because if you will allow, if you will, certainly when we share these opinions, mm-hmm. as you said, they, they help us to kind of flesh out what you might do in a situation that's a lot closer to us. I don't know Bill Cosby. Yeah. I don't, I had no experience with him besides watching the Cosby show in a different world for which he's also responsible, right? But mm-hmm. I don't know him, but I do yeah. know people who defend or are excited about his right to be free right now. Or his, I'll, I'll say beyond that, because I, I, I don't quite like the way that hits, his right to not face the consequences of his actions. And if you'll do that for this person we don't know, but when it comes to people who share community with us, who will hurt somebody that is in our community, are you going to do the same thing? I have to assume that you will. And that's a problem. It is a problem. Many, many things that, that <clears throat> occurred to me as you, you were speaking, Edwin. First, the fact that most rapists are not incarcerated. Most. Part of the reason most rapists are not incarcerated is because most rapes and sexual assaults are not reported. Mm -hmm. Why are they not reported? In part, because societally, we have tremendous challenges around, one, how how we grant a measure of belief or good faith in people reporting things that have happened to them. We also face some challenges with respect to how we, <sighs> challenges with, with respect to what, how, how we even define and interpret violations. Because the category of rape, I think often socially gets thought of in like very specific kinds of terms that someone overpowered and forced someone into a sexual act that they did not desire. And so anything that falls outside of those very specific parameters gets regarded as not serious, gets regarded as, oh, well, that's a gray area or there, you know, there were, you know, there was agency here at play and any, any other number of ways. Bottom line, there are so many factors that demonstrate to uh, victims of sexual assault that they are not going to be believed, they're not going to be taken seriously. They might even be severely punished and denigrated. Right. Especially if the object of, um, of your accusation, if the figure who is responsible is a person who is respected and revered and seen in another light already. Mm hmm. So this is complicated in part because Bill Cosby has a pre-existing uh, cachet, pre-existing measure of wealth and influence in his in his sphere in in Hollywood, right in the entertainment industry, that makes it difficult for folk to say, "Well, I'm going to take the the word of this person that we've never heard of and never seen before, and who has no po- relative power or influence in the situation, and believe that over." The, the guy, you know, who's been selling you Jell-O pudding pops since you were a kid. And so 
the culture of celebrity also makes it difficult. And, there, and, and part of why people revere celebrities is because there's something aspirational in that. They represent a kind of possibility, if not for us, a, a, a way in which we would like to see ourselves as having the measure of power and influence and wealth that allows us to kind of be above certain things, that allows us to move in ways that the average ordinary everyday person cannot. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in some ways, cause B becomes this proxy for people's hopes and aspirations and the belief of what you know a black man can do in a virulently racist and anti-black world that's always up against them, right? But this is once again is where I think him as this kind of exemplar or as this ideal of, oh, you know, this is who represents us is like, fam, no, he's not like, <laughs> listen to the kinds of statements he's made um, about other black folk, yes. classist kinds of statements. Right. And <clears throat> um, and what, what it represents to me is the fact that like your ability to identify with a lot of what he's saying and to say, oh, well, that's just good, you know, talk about like how we ought to be, how we ought to conform and comport ourselves. I'm like, man, this nation has never cared about how we as black folk comport ourselves. It cared about the fact that we were black and that in itself was a comportment that was not permissible for full citizenry. Like you can't be a full human because you're black. And no amount of shucking, jiving, performing, dressing up, polishing yourself, professionalism, any of that is going to undercut the fact that you are Black in a space, in a place that fundamentally sees your life as not valuable. So if, if Bill Cosby is your golden calf, guess what? That God is not saving you. And I, but I would also even add, add this. The, the desire to individualize these situations around sexual coercion and imbalances of power. You know, there's a, there's a, sco- a scholar um, recent, recently deceased, unfortunately, um, from the University of Chicago by the name of Lauren Berlant, who, who wrote, who, who's writing and scholarship like really digs into these questions of the public and the private. And, and particularly, um, Berlant, um, who wrote, wrote about, um, wrote this essay called The Queen of America Goes to Washington City, Notes on Diva Citizenship. And we, we can post this in the, in the description uh, for folks later. But um, uh, Berlant opens uh, with this, they open with, with this, this piece. What would it mean to write a genealogy of sex in America in which unjust sexual power was attributed not to an individual, nor to patriarchy, but to the nation itself. And part of the way that I'm reading Bill Cosby's actions and activities is understanding that coerced sexual encounter is mundane and everyday and ordinary in this nation yes in a way that makes it difficult right to like when when it's you if you're if you're if you're immersed in the water right you can't tell that you're wet you're simply just surrounded by all of this right 
So like what Cosby points to for me is a national problem and obsession that honestly has left a lot of, uh, particularly a lot of black folk in this nation's history in a deeply vulnerable place. And so there's this misplaced loyalty Right, that 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 conflates the situation of Cosby with some of the very real ways that sexual power and authority, that um, accusations and falsehoods around black folks and around black men in particular, in his case, have been used to like tear people down and ruin people's lives. It's right. like those things can be true, can be and are true at the same time. This stuff happens and. Cosby is not an innocent dude. Exactly. The the part that that highlights for me is it, it seems like we 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 will acknowledge the thing and then not take the next step in the logic, right? And so to be specific there, we can we have enough experience to understand that rape and sexual assault in our culture is is pervasive. And it is a, a major problem. So if you, uh, I don't know the exact figure, but I think the last I, I looked it up, it was something like 40% of women have had some experience with sexual assault in their lifetimes. And when you, you know, start to piece that out by demographic, then you see that it's even more skewed. There's an even higher rate for Black women. And so if we know that these experiences with that type of trauma, that type of assault are there and taking place, then it, it suggests that we ask ourselves, well, why is this so pervasive? You, we don't see the, all of these uh, situations being reported. We don't see that even the ones that are reported are then prosecuted. There's a very small percentage of these cases that end up actually resulting in consequences for the uh, the abuser, and in this situation, this highly you know publicized situation, this very visible situation, we have a situation where an abuser is getting away with it. And the part that 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 is bothersome for me in the in the in the logic is how mm -hmm. can we operate in a way that we don't ever think to ourselves, what if, well, if there are so many women among us who have experienced sexual assault, then doesn't that also mean that there's a lot of abusers among us as well? And how do you think this amount of abusers comes to be? It's because we don't explicitly teach young men about not, about consent, about making sure that they are thoughtful about how they speak with their partners and communicate about sex, uh, about not abusing someone, about when someone is under the influence of alcohol or anything else that it is, you can't, they can't consent. So when we, when we have a lack of that kind of education, then it produces all that we see falling out from this. How are we not connecting the dots there? And for me, at times, it is hard for me not to characterize this as being somewhat purposeful. Mm -hmm. Even if it's purposeful in its avoidance, 
even if the aim is not to create more abusers, it's avoiding dealing with the fact that the things that we have accepted in our society produce abusers. This creates, this is the, this is, these are the conditions under which abusers can come up and learn that what they, anything that they choose to do is okay. And that they can get away with it and that there are no consequences. And that also requires us to devalue the lives of people whom we share community with, even unto ourselves. And so you can't just stop at this celebration of Bill Cosby being released because it's an oversimplification of the, the entire landscape. These things cannot exist without us choosing to uphold the value of one life over another even if that life is a famous life, right? But mm -hmm. we know that Bill Cosby ain't the only one out here abusing people who's a rapist or someone who has committed sexual assault because there are a lot of, in the, in the macro view of this, nameless, faceless people who have, have experienced these same things and experienced the same lack of interest in holding the abuser accountable. And we can't abide that in a society that is seemingly interested in the agency of everyone. So then that makes us then question, does this society value everyone? And clearly, if this is something we abide, it doesn't. And we can't be okay with that. I agree, we cannot be okay with it. I would add to that, that we are also immersed in a number of factors that make it so difficult to effectively and honestly talk about these things. So when we, when we speak of, when we speak of abusers and victims, one of the challenges we face is a kind of social gendering of those categories. That's fair. Right. So what I think about is then what, what it what it means to say, you know, for folk to like not take seriously, um, you know, the coercive sexual abuse of uh, of boys and men mm -hmm. and and why that is. Because because part of it, then it, it we start we start once we start pulling at one thread, we start unraveling this larger fabric around. What are the things we, regardless of how we might frame um, the equality of persons, what sorts of underlying foundational beliefs do we have about people on the basis of gender, on the basis of the power that we ascribe to those gender performances? Because in many people's minds, it would say, oh, well, you know, in a given situation, like, oh, a man couldn't be assaulted, a man couldn't be raped because he has the physical prowess ostensibly to resist what is happening. But it's like, well, it's not entirely about that, right? Coercion is not necessarily about absolutes of, of power or differentiation, but it's about a, a situational leverage and ways in which people feel disempowered, even if it's not absolutely true about their given situation. And so like, so we get into a, you know, a very, a very like messy and challenging space that fundamentally, I think, boils down to we have investments in believing people with power 
influence, charisma, people who we view as more trustworthy. We also have investments and not believing those um, who we presume should have a different level of agency or responsibility. Um, and like this, man, it, it, it's, and, and it implicates everything we're doing as a society. Um, I think about the other, other ways that this, this kind of plays out, right? Like, and how fundamentally part of the silence, silencing then also is about people feeling like if I come out with this, then I'm having to, people are going to demand that I, I name a, a kind of role of agency or responsibility in what happened such that, oh, well, if I had made different kinds of choices and decisions, then I wouldn't be in this given situation. And, and this, you know, that, become, that becomes a sticky place, right? Because on one hand, could we, like, could we legitimately argue that there are certain kinds of risk situations that, you know, can contribute to a greater likelihood of certain outcomes? Uh, yeah, like I think we we can we can say some some spaces are relatively more safe than others, and we and that's you know what what does safety mean, right? Like that's a whole nother conversation. But at the same time, I think part of the underlying idea here is that we we shouldn't have to face particular consequences as a fundamental outcome of personal choices and decisions right like you like I, I can say that like hey it might be there are certain behaviors that I know for myself like hmm that's a riskier thing to do than not doing it and also the consequence of that shouldn't be like oh someone assaulted you and took advantage of you right like the the responsibility of not raping is on rapists right not on people who have been raped or assaulted um, but then I, but I also think about how this, this challenge around like who, who, who has, who has power and where we locate power and responsibility and agency. Like I think of, uh, Barack Obama speaking on the matter of, um, and he, he was and this related to kind of questions around sexual agency and power, um, speaking about, uh, abortion rights and the idea of, you know, him not wanting his daughters to have to pay, you know, a certain consequence or, or be punished for, you know, a, a mistake. And, and this is, you know, his, his language, his framing, right? Um, and what it like suggests to me is this interesting dynamic around, he wants them to not have to suffer a particular consequence for a set of activities or decisions that might've taken place and like this, this is where I think this stuff gets really entangled because we both don't want to operate like culturally in a way that makes these prescriptions around like who people can be or what people can do. We don't necessarily want to operate in ways that are judgmental about persons of uh, freely chosen decisions around their bodies, their sexual agency, um, and whom they practice that with. And we can also acknowledge like, man, there's like risks and consequences to things we may freely choose and that like might not necessarily be stuff, right? Like, I, I'll, I'll stop there because I, I feel like it's, 
it's a it's a heavy it's a heavy conversation to have and this this stuff like to me it never it's never in a it's never in a vacuum and i think comes back to the fact that like when we are when our nation's history is embedded in a deeply sexual relationship to the subjugated and disempowered um and like that's tied into our politics it's tied into our laws it's tied into all of the ways that we structure society it's like man like it's it's almost like man did we did we ever did we ever have a have a chance at seeing this as anything other than just like a repetition of a long ongoing cycle because like fundamentally the kind of way like bill bill cosby for me in, the, in these instances is microcosmic of the nation's relationship to subjugated people that you are valued for your labor your body and what you can be used for in the pleasure and power of an authority right and so the 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 spot that that consistently I guess trips me up in these conversations, particularly if I'm talking to somebody who might be on that side of saying, like, I'm glad, you know, Bill Cosby is out of out of jail and he should be or what have you, or even somebody who is, you know, defending the, you know, suspension of Shakari Richardson, right? The issue that I have is like, how, how, how are you okay with us continuing to just adhere to these rules that have been set for us that clearly have not created a situation in which we're all thriving and there, I mean, you and I have had this discussion, so I would say that we're not free at all if in, in the in the context of freedom that we would might define for ourselves we don't have access to that because in in at least in part that these rules stop us from having the ability to decide for ourselves and so when we think about rules that were created by an oppressive force how do we not decide to reevaluate the reason that the rule exists in the first place and our own dedication to upholding said rules it's 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 bothersome to me that we wouldn't be willing to reopen our thinking or or to revisit our our uh thinking about some have, of what has been put in place with regards to how think what the outcomes are when we look around is this actually something that we're proud of are we proud of a system that says that bill cosby can come out of jail on a technicality having admitted to assaulting so many women are we proud of a system that highlights the basically strips uh, the humanity of a person from any kind of decision as to what the consequences will be for that person. Uh, 
and doesn't think about the ways that um, that decision historically came in, came to pass. Because I understand it when we talk about Shakari Richardson and you know Usada and Wada or what have you. Um, a lot of those rules were heavily influ influenced uh, by uh, the United States and the war on drugs. Shout out to my frat brother, John Lewis, for pointing some of that stuff out to me. Uh, but, right, so when we think about <laughs> even the foundations of holding, upholding those rules, what are, what are we actually doing here? What is, is this helping any of us to be able to li live a fuller and freer life? And in terms of the outcome that we have, like, did we gain anything? Why are we defending this being in place? Why are we, why do we like this? Do we like this? I'm glad, I'm glad you brought, brought this up. So on a fundamental level, yes, we are, we are not free in the sense of having like free reign to do as we please, even if it harms no one else and have no consequences from that. Um, I, I was thinking a lot about the, um, you know, the situation with um, Shakari Richardson and you know watching watching her uh watching her interview uh man i felt i felt so i felt so sad and i felt so bad for like watching watching i was like man this is this is just tough it's difficult and she was owning you know her role in this particular outcome and you know, that didn't make me less sad. I was still, I was sad that like, wow, this, you know, it's coming, it's coming to this and it's playing out in this way. Um, and so I recognize that a lot of the, the feelings about and response to the situation of Shakari Richardson have to do with, yes, like with the, the sort of unifying body and structure that arbitrates how one can you know, one's personal activities, right, have some bearing on their sports performance and then their ability to participate in these sports performances at a competitive level. Um, and there's also a lot in there entangled in how do we look at the sort of vulnerability of Black, young Black women, um, and particularly Black women who are read as unruly or um, as self-determined, as uh, willful, as choosing for themselves how to be and how to do and and so there's a lot of there's a lot entangled in how people are reading the situation and interpreting what has happened i also think in the in the process of that interpretation right like the desire the desire for the outcome because i can name like my like my desire as a as a as a person who enjoys sport as a person who has been deeply moved by the athletic prowess of Shakari Richardson. I want to see her race because I know she's one of the best in the world. I want to yeah. watch her race these other elite sprinters from other nations. And I want to see her compete at the highest level uh, on the biggest stage um, in the 100 meter dash. And I know she's not going to have that opportunity because of the, the constrictions in place. Now, how we feel about the rules right like is 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 one thing but i also think there's a, a kind of 
there's a lot entangled in like how that all comes about. So yes, we we can point to the sort of uh, racist underpinnings of our kind of national and international perspectives on drugs and drug use and how that gets that gets framed. Um, one of my one of my friends um, from undergrad, um, shout out to uh, Cheryl J Davis, who is a competitive athlete herself, um, a trainer, bodybuilder, figure competitor. Um, shared some things that I, I thought were really like powerful and meaningful. Um, one of the things she talked about was, so how most people assume that performance enhancing drugs is about steroids, quote unquote. But actually performance enhancing drugs is a much broader category. Um, it can be, you know, for prescription medicinal, uh, medicinal drugs. Um, it can be anything that's used for a uh, performance edge in any aspect, not simply, um, you know, the playing of the sport, but it could be speed, strength, recovery, could be pain management, stress reduction, any number of things, right, that related to the overall, like, slate of performance. Um, one of the things she named specifically about THC, one of the active ingredients in marijuana, is that it's a hormone disruptor. Part of the challenge here of why it's on the banned substance list is because its negative effects cannot be universally recommended and its positive effects can be selectively advantageous. So how it actually plays out in like a person's performance is variable and not able to be regulated um, in, in a consistent way so part of the challenge is well whether whether it's legal for you know people's recreational use in different places is 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 not necessarily as relevant as the fact that elite sports are not recreational activities and so it's it's because of the difficulty of standardizing how that plays out it's on the banned substance list now we can, and so what I'm, what I'm confronted with though too, is the notion that the facts of the matter are also different from people's experience of the given situation. But like, so, so what a lot of people are concerned with is not it's like the facts of the matter are less relevant to many people, right? Like she, she admitted like, yeah, she had some weed and like she was using it in a situation of coping with uh, the, the death of her mother, which I'm sure was and is an extremely traumatic event, a thing that she is certainly still like grieving in innumerable ways. And for any of us who have lost a parent or have lost a, a loved one, right? Like, you know, the, the death of my father sits with me in ways that like, you know, and he, this is, he died 13 years ago, right? So all that, all that to say that like, man, part of how we sit with these things is less, has less to do with like the facts of the matter and more to do with what is it that motivates our interpretation of the situation? Like, because even, even as I can name how our quote unquote allegiance to the rules has not necessarily conduced to better outcomes for us. 
I can also name in, in similar ways. Like a lot, a lot of the folk I know who are not necessarily committed to rules also don't necessarily like go out of their way to do things that are patently illegal under certain like constraints, right? So right. like I can like I can point to a lot of things that say like, oh, that's a that's a that's a silly, that's a silly rule, that's a silly law, that's an unjust thing that I should not be obedient to. It's a lot of stuff I think is silly, and I also still don't necessarily go out and challenge and do in my own personal life. Um, and so there, this, but this I think too comes back to what I was I was saying in our conversation earlier that part of what happens when these kinds of situations come into the larger public fray and discussion is that we are now dealing with this blurry and murky boundary between the personal or the private and the public. And where do we, where, where are those lines drawn? Like, um, cause I would even say, you know, circling back to this conversation around, you know, uh, around sexual assault and the testimony of an attestment to these events. We also realize there's this challenge and Lauren Berlant talks about this in the case of Anita Hill where you must now, for the sake of vindicating yourself in what has happened, you must now make public this private and personal experience of violation. You must put this out now in a place where it can be adjudicated, where it can be assessed. And like we think, you know, we see so many instances of this happening with the, the numerous women who testified to abuses by Bill Cosby, um, to the um, woman, uh, I believe Christine Blasey Ford, who stepped up uh, during the uh, nomination of Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme yes. Court, right? And, and we and we see what happens when you are now compelled to make public, mm -hmm. to give account for these sorts of private decisions, right? Like, because I, I felt I felt a way when Shakari Richardson was talking about why she made that decision and what was happening around that. And it was like, yo, there's a profound exposure that comes in trying to also make justification for why you chose what you did. So I, I'll stop, I'll stop there. Right, a few weeks ago, you described yourself as uh, iconoclastic. And, you know, mm -hmm. I didn't immediately know that word. So I just hopped on Google and I was like, wow, I'm a kind of classic too. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and so yeah. quick definition, just because, you know, I needed it. So characterized by attack on cherished beliefs or institutions. And yes, like so. Right. I realized that the. And I was I was vocal this week about defending Shakari Richardson. Right. And I realized mm -hmm. that that is not a um, a perfect stance to take. Right. Because the fact is, and by Shakari's own words, she knew that there was a rule in place and that she was making a choice to violate said rule, right? For me, I simply don't care. I, and, and, and right, I think, you know, there's a level of honesty that we can enter these conversations with. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I guess the way I make sense of my own reading of these situations is mm -hmm. to say that if I can't see how this is necessarily hurting uh, um, a, a situation or, or, or hurting the, the fairness or the, the freedom that is 
uh, person is allowed to move with, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Then it's hard for me to then uh, stand up for a ruling uh, when it seems to be inhibiting some of that, right? And, uh, yeah. and even in that discussion, right, you pointed out that there are some, uh, you know, quote unquote, performance enhancing aspects of of marijuana use, right? Even if it's yeah. to say makes a makes an athlete more relaxed than they would mm -hmm. be otherwise, or uh, helps them to deal with anxiety or what have you. Um, I guess the the hard part there is when we start to talk about what is legal and what isn't legal, that it becomes this very kind of problematic discussion uh, or, or, or it highlights some problematic aspects of what we deem as okay, right? We think about this even in the context of sports that probably have more, you know, uh, more consequences around pain. Like if we yeah. think about American football, right? And so mm -hmm. there are a lot of medicines that are legal that are doing things to destroy the bodies or turn off the pain receptors for parts of the body in order to allow someone to play the sport. And that's a yeah. legal thing for the, those athletes to use when in fact it's doing a lot of damage to the athletes. And we see this in how they age or their dealings with uh, concussions or their lack of cognitive ability as they leave the game and move forward in their lives after the game, right? And so it's, it's, it's hard for me to look at what is okay to use in terms of painkillers and things that can be addictive. We talk about athletes using opioids and there have been well-documented situations of athletes being allowed to use those uh, kind of addictive medicines, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas you have something like marijuana that is very much less so. Alcohol is not an issue for uh, athletes to use, even though it's more dangerous. And even if, you know, I, I pulled um, a little screenshot that was circulating uh, from the USADA on why cannabinoids are, uh, or excuse, cannabinoids, excuse me, are uh, on the prohibited list. And there's some rule about here, a rule on here that says the use of illicit drugs that are harmful to health and that may have performance enhancing properties is not consistent with the athlete as a role model for young people around the world. And, you know, we've been doing the role model questioning since Charles Barkley. Yeah. We needn't have that written in the rules. And it just, for, for me, things like that, and this may be an imperfect stance, it just makes me want to throw out the whole thing because it seems ridiculous, right? Uh, and, and, and better stated, it seems arbitrary. Even in the enforcement of some of these things, there is another track athlete who is essentially banned from the next two Olympics. Yeah. Because she missed a drug test appointment. And the reason that she missed that appointment is because she was in bed after an abortion. I mean, what are we, what are we doing? What's the point? So what you what you raise is precisely the problem of the letter of the law and how adherence to the letter of the law allows us to distance ourselves from meaningful care and compassion 
in our interpretation and application of the spirit of the law. Rules set up a safety structure for authorities in power that enables them to justify not caring about the context of how and why the rule was violated or broken. It's a way of, of, of essentially pre-washing your hands of culpability and how a thing plays out. And so, so that so we 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 find ourselves in this in this uh this kind of dilemma in which it's not to say that some measure of regulation is not necessary for clarifying the parameters of how we do a thing safely, how we do it in the most equitable way possible. Um because particularly as it as it relates to the question around you know drug testing and performance enhancing drugs, um, PED usage is actually much higher amongst second tier athletes, amongst people who are not as good, right? Who are just not as get like as athletically gifted, who just don't have like the 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 skill, the ability to consistently perform on the level that the the most elite folks do. And given its pervasiveness, what we often hear about is the people who were unfortunate enough to get caught and not people who were just exceptional in using it when others weren't. All of that aside, what, what, it, what it underscores though is, but, the, the, but there's also a lot tied to how and why like do people make these particular kinds of choices and under what circumstances uh, it's it's also certainly tied to a measure of capitalistic benefit because part of why people want to perform a certain way is you know you perform a certain way you get the endorsements you get the the money you get the the cachet and the celebrity you are situated differently in your career by virtue of how you are able to perform when the pressure is high and the spotlight is at its brightest. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, you know, to me, the, the Olympics are a problem in the same way that the NCAA is, in which the desire to frame itself as this bastion of, you know, we, we are the, 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 the height of, you know, sports sanctity and amateurism. It's like, fam, y'all, y'all benefit greatly off the labor and performance of so many other people for whom the benefit is dramatically increased, decreased if they aren't the elite of the elite, the cream of the crop. And so even thinking about the motivations for why people are doing what they're doing, it's like, yo, the, the whole enterprise is a messy, dirty, uninnocent thing but it also then, in order to preserve itself, creates these kinds of dramatic and draconian rules. That, and, and like, I think, but, but it's also, once, once again, for me, it's not even simply at the level of the, the individual or the institution. I'm like, this is fundamentally how, this is fundamentally like national <laughs> kinds of ideology. Um, and so what we do, what we do about that, I mean, 
it's this it's, and, and, I, and I sit and think about how much of this often just comes back to capitalism, the desire to capitalize mm-hmm. off labor, off bodies. Uh, a friend of, friend of mine, you know, um, was posting about something he was reading and it made so much sense to me. I was like, yo, this is like a clear, a big notion that a lot of people miss. You know, a lot of people frame the Civil War as being about slavery about a South that wanted to maintain slavery and a North that wanted to abolish it. But really, the Civil War, much more accurately, was about differentiations between the past and the future of capitalism. Slavery representing the past and wage slavery representing the future, representing a much more readily acceptable and adaptable model for maintaining a permanent underclass and a permanent subjugation of other people. So all of these, all, all, all of these, these things playing out, whether it's Bill Cosby getting out of prison, Shakari Richardson and others being, uh, you know, uh, punitively uh, assessed because of you know issues with drug testing or even you know the fact that the ocean was on fire because of a rupture like gas line right all of this comes back in some ways right like to the kinds of power differential and imbalance sustained at the heart of capitalism like someone stands to benefit from who goes free and who 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 stays incarcerated? And then we abide and defend that kind of freedom. And and it it stands to reason only for the purpose of reserving the possibility that maybe one day we too might get to be an oppressor. Yeah, it's <laughs> the we always certain people people you you stay embedded and invested in this because you're convinced that somehow, some way, you just might find the golden ticket. How, how, do, how does that, but how does that work? How does, how does that get us to a place where we have, we all have the things, the, 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 the issue, and you know, I'm certainly in my, my lack of communication in the last 15 seconds, expressing how frustrating this type of thinking is for me, right? Um, there's enough for all of us. There's enough for all of us. And I'm so, I'm weary of um, the belief that we have to get all of ours because if we don't, then somebody else is gonna take it. Um, and and that fuels yeah. in many cases, um, the, the spirit of the conversations that we have on this podcast uh, and my continued uh, desire to push folks who I share community with to think about the, the, the consequences of what we believe, right? What, what then happens because we believe this? If we believe that, you know, it's, it's that the law and legality is the way that we should decide whether a decision is right or just, then how does that, 
how do we reconcile that with all of the ways that the law does not allow for just things to, to take place, right? And ultimately, it's to push us to stop picking and choosing when we apply whatever rule we decide we want to apply, right? And, yeah. and, and right, it's, it's, it's a difficult practice. Because even in my a few minutes ago saying, I don't really care about that, we all have that space in us that desires to say, I don't really want to have that discussion. I don't really want to get to the bottom of that, right? Yeah. But, but in fact, actually, even even I say, I say to you as I say it to myself, actually, you kind of got to, if you really want to get to a space where we come up with some kind of system, some kind of convention, some kind of uh, way of looking at the world that uh, at least some structure for evaluation of what we decide, then we have to be willing to do the work of, of actually evaluating what's in front of us and not accepting these simple answers because simple answers often in function allow folks to get bulldozed. All of us had that social studies education uh, here in this country, well, the vast majority of us. Uh, where McGraw-Hill had us out here thinking that slavery was not really as bad as it really was. If you are a child of the 90s like me, then you did not get the, the, the nasty, dirty version from a textbook in your classroom at your elementary school. The vast majority of us didn't. And we have to evaluate that there is a purpose in that. There's a purpose in teaching us that rules will save us. Yeah. And keeping us in line will, will save us that that, you know, we should we should use less plastic straws to save the ocean as a, 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 a wormhole to the pits of hell rages <laughs> in the Gulf Bro. of Mexico, right next to my home state. Like, dude, we how we can't reconcile these things. And so it requires us to instead of just kind of hand-waving and keeping on about our, our, our habitual uh, actions and, the, and the, the kind of head in the clouds way of approaching this world that we actually say, do, do we want what's coming? Because certainly there are more dire consequences the longer that we allow these things to go unaddressed, the more that we create a world in which we don't protect people who are under threat from sexual violence and violence of other kinds, right? We don't protect those who are vulnerable among us, the less safe it becomes for all of us. The more we accept rules that just don't care about the humanity of people who we share community with, we then make space for the same rules to bulldoze us, to bulldoze people close to us, to bulldoze everything, literally, as the ocean is on fire. What, what comes to mind for me is the fact that laws and the concept of legality insulate those in power from having to deal with the real moral and ethical consequences of what they impose on other people. And the fact that we, and we see played out in various ways how the most vulnerable of us always suffer the most dire consequences 
of careless and brazen systemic activities. The Pacific Northwest over this past, past week and some change had unprecedented heat waves. So many folks, particularly I, I wanna say hun hundreds in uh, Vancouver, British Columbia died as a result of this heat wave. Um, heat wave that produced in part by uh, consequences of poor environmental decision-making and practice. Consequences, right, that are the result of what powerful conglomerates have done in the quest and pursuit for more profit, in the quest and pursuit of more extraction, right, of material and labor and, and by, resources. By the same token, not because we didn't recycle enough. Absolutely, right. It, no, it, nothing, nothing to do with that. That's smoke and mirrors compared to the real extractive and damaging labor going on all the time. And keeping in mind that like, so the folks who suffer the most in this, right? The places, the places where these like extreme temperature swings even are happening now are places where like folk, folk are not responsible for what caused it, but they are in the places that are most readily decimated by what's going on. And, and to me that it's, but it's, it's a, it's an illustration of these age old power dynamics, right? Like, who 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 is it we believe is worthy of care redemption and protection because as i you know as, as i as i saw somebody discuss it the other day like man you know the same folk that be like super interested in you know redeeming say a bill cosby it's like man y'all just as invested in redeeming trash stuff that happened in the bible y'all invested in the redemption of you know a king david who was himself like a sexual assaulter and a terrible father and like in many ways just a not good person a murderer all of that and but redeemed redeemed why because the text describes him as a man after god's own heart you know but like man <laughs> do we do we care about a Shakari Richardson in that way? Do we care about you know the person who does not run swiftly, the person who does not perform as we deem respectable or professional, the person who is trying to reckon how to live in a world that constantly reminds them of their subjugation, of their lack of value and worth? Like this, the, the, the rules give us justification for not caring about folk we didn't want to care about. In the first place, full stop. Precisely. And <laughs> I guess in, in that is always, well, if you don't care, say that with your chest. If you Bruh. don't care about those folks, say that clearly and say it with your chest, right? So let's let's not do this thing where we pretend like we actually, you know, want good outcomes for these people when everything about what we choose suggests that we couldn't care less what their outcomes are. 
or how their life goes, what they experience. We can't continue in this time where so much upheaval is happening around us to be dishonest about our position, about caring for those who we're sharing this place with. We have to, we have to be willing to make ourselves uncomfortable in releasing some of the, um, the, the comforts that we have with the ways that we've always seen the world or, or, or been able to make sense of how everything works together. And we also need to be willing to learn more to, to, to say that maybe we don't have all the answers. And so even as we present these things, we're constantly kind of pushing to get more information, to learn more about it, to see how we can be more inclusive, how, inclusive, how we can get more folks under the tent or at the table, right? Uh, how can more folks be served by the decisions that we make about the world or the, the type of... Um, actions and policies uh, that we advocate for so that everyone can have what they need to just be levelly human. There it is. And that's, I think, a reminder that getting to that place isn't even necessarily about arriving at a place. Never. It's about an ongoing journey it's about the recognition that to really work out daily our ethical and moral responsibilities to one another and our care for each other also might be something that we can't necessarily systematize. R rules, new rules are not going to save us from old rules. And they won't. But I do believe underneath that, I come back to the question of what are my moral and ethical principles? What is my bedrock? What is my grounding from which I can then make the situational assessment? Because we all, on some level, like there's, there's, there's rules for how things function in my house. And those who come into my household I, I understand clearly the rules at hand. One of which is a hey, shoes off at the door because if you're who knows where and when you've been stepping and I don't want all of that now becoming a part of where I walk around barefoot right Come on. but like and while I say that you know jokingly somewhat facetiously I'm also <laughs> like there's there's a functional like reason for rules in a given context but those rules are not now a universal prescriptive for how everyone functions any and everywhere. And so there's both a need for us to attend to the kind of superstructure of our world while also leaving room for the intimate and the personal spaces where like freedom is so desperately needed. And it's hard to have those kinds of freedom at that level when the superstructure of your world is constantly antagonizing that and working against you being free. So 
I don't know, man. I can't call it, but <laughs> all I know is, you know, I'm, I'm trying each day to practice that kind of deeper compassion and to be able to say like, man, you know, I ain't got it all figured out, but while we figuring it out, man, like, let me practice caring for you, for myself, for my neighbor. And that's at the heart of it. Yeah. Everything flows from there. Yes, yeah, sir. man. Tough week. But yeah, dude. <laughs> bad bad week for infinite scrolling on, hey, your, on uh, your phone. <laughs> what is it? Doom scrolling? Doom scrolling. Yes, doom yeah. scrolling. All day. Just yeah, I need to take a break. Um, thanks y'all for listening again to another episode of Black Men Unlearning. Uh, we certainly appreciate you continuing to rock with us. And uh, we'll catch you next time. All right, y'all. Be easy. Thank you for listening to the Black Men Unlearning podcast. You can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at Black Men Unlearning and email us at blackmenunlearning at gmail.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our feed wherever you listen to podcasts.